Well, good morning. Thank you for joining us today. Today's message text is 2 Samuel chapter 9. So if you have a Bible, if you wouldn't mind turning to 2 Samuel chapter 9, uh, that's the text we'll be looking at today. 2 Samuel chapter 9 says this, And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul, whose name was Ziba. They called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul, that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodeber. Then king David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, and Lodeber. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and all to his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till, uh, till the land for him, and shall bring in the produce, that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your father's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servants, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Mekah, and all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. I believe that love is something that all of us have experienced, but also all of us have trouble understanding or comprehending or defining. Many languages have a number of different words that are used to describe the concept that we call love, but in English there's only one word. And we can use the word love to describe uh, our love for inanimate objects, for people, for places, a, a number of things. We can love our wives, we can love our families, we can love the Buffalo Bills, we can love ice cream, we can love singing, we can love a whole host of different things. And so the definition of love and the meaning of love can get a little bit murky and a little bit complicated. Consider the complexity of the following definitions. One writer defines love this way. Love is a complex set of emotions, behaviors, and beliefs associated with strong feelings of affection, protectiveness, warmth, and respect for another person. Love can also be used to apply to non-human animals, to principles, and to religious beliefs. For example, a person might say he or she loves his or her dog, loves freedom, or loves God. According to Wikipedia, love encompasses a range of strong and positive emotional and mental states, from the most sublime virtue or good habit, the deepest interpersonal affection, and to the simplest pleasure. An example of this range of meanings is that the love of a mother differs from the love of a spouse, which differs from the love of food. Most commonly, love refers to a feeling of strong attachment, attraction and emotional attachment. 
So love is something that's notoriously difficult to define. Now, some of you may remember at my wedding, my brother did an epic uh, best man speech. And one of the jokes that he offered at my expense was he said that I was quite the ladies man. He said I was the ladies man because I married every woman that I ever talked to. Now that was a little bit of an exaggeration, a slight exaggeration. But Stephanie was really the first person that I ever really dated seriously. And so I made some really dumb mistakes. And in all actuality, I'm kind of surprised that she stayed with me. But thankfully she did. So when we were dating, uh, early on in dating, I'm not sure exactly when, but I know it was pretty early on. Uh, there was one night where we, uh, Stephanie came over to my parents' house and my brother and his girlfriend were there. And I remember uh, watching a movie with Stephanie and we were uh, holding hands or I had my arm around her uh, or something like that. And I felt this strong uh, flood of emotions that I had maybe never felt before. And I was just so happy that I was with her. And so the next day, we were texting. Uh, I was at my house and she was uh, at her house. And so we were texting. And I thought it would be a good idea to tell her that I loved her for the first time over a text message. I thought that was a good idea. Not only that, I thought, well... Maybe I'll talk about something else, and then I'll just throw it in at the end. So I, we were talking about something else. I had this uh, long text, if I remember correctly. And at the end, I just put, I love you. Kind of weird. Not the best approach to take for the first time that you tell someone that you love them. And so after that, we had a conversation, which was a little bit awkward, since I made it awkward. And in that conversation, I came to realize that Stephanie wasn't quite ready to say, I love you, at least not over a text message. And as I delved a little bit further, I discovered that her definition of love was a little bit different than my definition of love. Now, we had been dating just a short time at that point, And to me, when I said, I love you, I meant, I care about you. I feel this flood of emotions towards you. I like being around you. I'm happy with you. But for her, if she was going to say, I love you, it was not simply feelings, but it had the force of a commitment. That I do feel things towards you, but I also am in some way committing myself to you. And so we had those different conceptions and different definitions of love. And I think that many people in our culture have differing conceptions of love. But in the passage that we're looking at today, we're going to look at a concept of love, uh, which the Hebrews called hesed. Hesed was a word that was used to describe the covenant faithfulness of God. And we think, when we think about the Hebrew word hesed, which is repeated in this passage a number of times, it connotes faithful, steadfast, devoted love. And as we look at this passage, on the surface it may seem a little bit strange why this is included in the Bible. It's kind of an interesting story that David shows favor to the son, uh, the, the son of Jonathan. But as we look at this story, I think that we'll find that it tells us some important things about love. 
And I think if we look even further than that, it will show us that it is a picture of God's love for us and how we should love other people. So I believe that this this story tells us three things about love. The first is that love is not logical. After King Saul's death, David faced essentially a civil war. There were those who came to support him and then those who came to support Saul's son, Ishbosheth. And so there was this civil war where they were warring uh, between war between the two countries, between the between the nation. And this went on for some time. Actually, David defeats Ishbosheth, has control of the kingdom of Israel. And at this point, the most logical, the expected thing that would happen would be that the king would come and put all of the opposing uh, king's relatives to death. That way, if they were put to death, then there would be no chance that they would up, they would start a civil war once again or start an insurrection. But if any of the family was alive of the previous administration, then there was always the chance that there would be a rebellion. And so logically, it would be expected that David would come and destroy all of Saul's family. But he doesn't do that. He goes to the former servant of Saul and asks if there's anyone left from the line of Saul. And it's discovered that not only is Saul's, or, or Jonathan's son, uh, Mephibosheth, alive, but Mephibosheth also has a son who is alive. And rather than putting Mephibosheth to death, David choose to, to show, chooses to show him hesed, or loving kindness, or faithful love. This is in direct opposition to the concept and the conception of love that we have in our culture. Oftentimes when we think of love in our culture, it's this idea of I scratch your back, you scratch my back. In romantic, when the, the idea of romantic love, it's this idea that I find someone who fulfills me and meets all of my needs, and then in return, I can meet their needs. Or in terms of interpersonal relationships with friends we think of those people who are kind to us the people those people we showed love to and there's this kind of reciprocal relationship where i show love to them they show love to me i do nice things for them they do nice things for me but the idea of love that's not reciprocal is difficult for our culture to understand it was also difficult for jesus culture to understand in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, Jesus says this. He says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's the world's conception of what love is. You love those who love you. You hate those who don't like you, who don't treat you well. But Jesus turns that on its head, and he continues in verse 44, and he says, uh, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now that doesn't make sense. That's not logical. We look at 1 Corinthians 13, 4 to 8. It says, love is patient and kind. Now that doesn't necessarily make sense. If someone is giving you greed, why should you keep putting up with that? Does not envy, does not boast. Okay, I get that. It's not arrogant or rude. It gets that. I get that does not insist on its own way. Well, maybe sometimes you do need to insist on your own way. You have to have your voice be heard. You have to defend your rights. 
It's not irritable or resentful. Well, sometimes maybe it, maybe it should be resentful. Maybe it should be irritable if the other person who is not treating us as we want to be treated does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Okay, we get that. Rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. Wait, I mean, I mean, there's got to be a point where it ends, right? Believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. I mean, that doesn't make sense from our cultural mindset. You'd think that there has to be a point where we just give up. But love, from God's perspective, is never logical. It never makes sense according to human standards. Writer Kent M. Keith once said this, people are unreasonable, illogical, and self-centered. Love them anyway. If you are kind, people may accuse you of selfish ulterior motives. Be kind anyways. If you're successful, you'll win some false friends and true enemies. Succeed anyways. The good you do today will be forgotten tomorrow. Be good anyway. Honesty and frankness will make you vulnerable. Be honest and frank anyway. What you spend years building may be destroyed overnight. Build anyway. People need help, but may attack you if you try to help them. Help them anyway. And the final analysis is between you and God. It was never between you and them anyways. So the first thing we see about love in this passage is that love is not logical. The second thing we see about love in this passage is that love is unconditional. The text tells us that Mephibosheth is handicapped. Now we learn in 2 Samuel chapter 4 that he became handicapped after, after Saul and Jonathan died. Mephibosheth's nurse took him because he was about five years old and fled with him. And while she was fleeing, he fell and he became uh, lame at that point, couldn't walk. Now it may have been something that damaged his spinal cord or it may have simply been that he broke his legs. Uh, in that day and age, if, you, if your legs weren't set back properly, then you could become lame. And so the text tells us that he is handicapped. And when we think about uh, someone who's handicapped in, in our day and age, we understand that uh, people who are handicapped are made in the image of God and of equal worth and value and have much to offer and just as much as anybody else. And uh, we know that uh, people who are handicapped, it's 99% of the time, it's nothing that they did to cause that. It's just something that happens, and we don't know exactly why that happens. Uh, but in David's day, that wasn't necessarily the case. They didn't necessarily have that view of handicapped people. Uh, for example, uh, people who were lame were not allowed to serve as priests. Uh, in addition, uh, if they were offering sacrifices, animals that were lame or blemished were not allowed to be sacrificed. And we know that Jesus' view was different than the view of these cultures, but we had this idea that was going around that people who were lame were people who were cursed by God or who had sinned. We saw this in Jesus' day in John chapter 9, verses 1 to 3, when the disciples come to Jesus, and they, after passing a man who was born blind, the disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned that this man this man or his parents, that he was born blind. Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but the works of God might be displayed in him. We see that Mephibosheth himself even seemed to have a neg negative conception of himself when he says in verse 8, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog 
such as I. Now in that time frame, it might be expected that the great and mighty King David would exclude anybody from his court that was lame or blemished or any way short of perfection. And yet he chooses to allow Mephibosheth to not only come into his house, but to eat at his table forever and ever, as long as he lives. And the thing is, he doesn't do that because he really likes Mephibosheth. He doesn't do that because he finds Mephibosheth particularly desirable. He does that on behalf of Jonathan, his friend Jonathan, whom he had made a covenant with in the past. And so it doesn't matter who Mephibosheth is. It doesn't matter how broken and how messed up his life is. It doesn't matter what his character is. All that matters is that he would accept the invitation to come into David's house. Because David loves him because of Jonathan. Because of the relationship he had with Jonathan. And so his love for Mephibosheth is unconditional. We see finally, the third thing about love that we learn in this passage is that love is contagious. We see something very interesting throughout the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. We see that David is not only the giver of this hesed, this steadfast, faithful love, but he's also the receiver of this love. That God chose to pour out his hesed on David. Remember back in 1 Samuel, when Samuel went to Jesse, David's father, to anoint a king. And the first person that came out was David's brother, Eliab. And Samuel thought to himself, surely this man is going to be the king of Israel. And God said, no, this, this isn't the one. Then another brother, no, that's not the one. Another brother. And then Samuel says, is there nobody left? And they said, well, and his father said, well, there's the one left, the youngest, and he's out in the field tending the sheep. And yet that's the one that God chose to be his king. David would not be the most logical choice that would be the one to fight against king or against Goliath. It would have been expected that the great king Saul, the mighty man, the warrior would fight against Goliath, but God chose David. God chose to put his favor upon David. It wasn't a logical decision that God chose David. We see that when David is on the run from Saul, he made the statement that was similar to what Mephibosheth said, 1 Samuel 24, 14. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea. He was not high and mighty. He was not the one that people would expect would be the king of Israel, and yet God chose to pour out his steadfast love upon him. And we see that God chose to love him unconditionally. We see that David is going to make some big mistakes in the next couple chapters. And yet when he cries out to God and begs for forgiveness, God's going to hear his cry and God is going to forgive him. Then we see in chapter 7, there's a couple chapters before our passage today, that God makes a covenant with David and he promises that his faithful love will be upon him and his generations. That his hesed His steadfast love will be on his son and upon his offspring forever. And it's from that place 
It's from experiencing that steadfast, faithful love that then David is, allow, is able to show that steadfast, faithful love to Mephibosheth and Saul's family. Because faithful, steadfast love is contagious. So we learned some things about what it means to truly love those around us in this passage. But I, like I said before, I think this is also a picture of God's love for us. God's love for His people is illogical. Romans 5, 7-8 says this, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. doesn't make sense from a logical standpoint that God would leave the throne room of heaven and come down to the earth and be born in a manger, to live a sinless life, and to die on the cross for our sins. It doesn't make sense that Jesus would hang around with sinners and tax collectors rather than the nobility. The love of God is not logical. The love of God is not conditional. God didn't wait for us to clean up our act before He came to the cross. All we have to do is accept his free gift of love, just like Mephibosheth had to accept that free gift of love, to accept the invitation to sit at David's table. Jesus gives us an invitation to come to his table, the table where he offers his body and his blood on behalf of all humanity, and he says, all who are thirsty, to come. Luke twenty-two seventeen 17 17-20 says this, And he took... Jesus a cup and when he had given thanks he said take this and divide it among yourselves for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes and he took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and gave it to them saying this is my body which is given for you do this in remembrance of me and likewise the cup after they had eaten saying this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood so Jesus offers his body, his blood. He invites us to the table, even though we're broken, even though we are lame spiritually, even though we don't deserve to come to the table. He invites us there anyways. There's a man by the name of uh, Harvey Pennock. He was a pro golfer uh, in years past. And he had some success in, in pro golf. And back in 1920, he started writing some books some observations that eventually would become come, turn into books. His one book, little, The Little Red Book, sold more than a million copies. His second book, And If You Play Golf, You're My Friend, has sold nearly three quarters of a million. But he wasn't ever out to make money off of his books. They were just his observation that just kind of turned into books. And he started writing down his observations in around 1920 in a little red notebook and it wasn't until 1991 that he asked a reporter to review his notes and see if maybe it was something that could turn into a book and so the reporter re reviewed the notes and said hey this is really good and they sent it on to a publisher and they left word with Penick's wife the next evening that Simon and Schuster had agreed to an advance of $90,000. So when this writer afterwards saw Penick, the old man was a little bit troubled and 
Ryder was a little bit perturbed by that. Why was he so troubled? Finally, Panic told what was on his mind. He described. He said, with all of his medical bills, there was no way he could advance Simon and Shuster that much money. That he couldn't come up with ninety thousand dollars. And the writer had to explain to him that he didn't have to come up with $90,000. He just had to receive that and sign the contract. And I think in a similar way, sometimes we think that we need to come up with something to impress God before he'll accept us. That we need to somehow earn our salvation, that we need to clean our lives up. And then after we do that, then God will be pleased with us so we can come to him. We don't realize that all we need to do is receive his gift. Of course, when we do that, God is going to change us. Of course, we have to be willing to change, but there's nothing in us that would cause God to love us. In and of ourselves, we are broken, but God, by his grace, chooses to pour out his love upon us and offers us the invitation to come to his table. He doesn't love us because we're lovely. He doesn't invite us because we're desirable. He invites us because of what Jesus did. Just like Mephibosheth was invited on behalf of his father, Jonathan, we are invited on behalf of Christ. We're invited to the table of God because of the sacrifice of Christ. Maybe there's some listening today, maybe you've never experienced the love of God. Maybe you've never experienced this has said, this devoted, faithful love. And if that's you, you can experience a love today that is greater than any other love you could ever experience on this planet. A love that is transformative, transformative, a love that gives hope, a love that gives peace, a love that can change our outlook. It's a love that doesn't make sense, that's unconditional. That you can know a God who sees your brokenness. He sees where we fall short and he chooses to love us anyways. So you can come to know him today. And if that's you, if you'd like to enter into a relationship with Jesus today, in just a few minutes, I'd like to share with you how you can do that. But love is also contagious. 1 John 4, 7-8 says, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love God does not know God because God is love. When we experience the faithful, devoted, has said love of God, we cannot help but be changed. Napoleon Bonaparte once said this, Alexander, Caesar, and Hannibal conquered the world, but they had no friends. Jesus founded his empire upon love, and at this hour millions would die for him. He's won the hearts of men, a task a conqueror cannot do. As we're changed by that love, we must demonstrate that faithful love to those around us. Love that doesn't make sense from a human perspective. Love that costs us something. Love with no strings attached. Love that is unconditional. That's the kind of love that transforms the world. And that's the kind of love that we need in our culture in the current crisis today. The world today desperately needs people who rejoice in God's faithful love and who demonstrate that faithful love to those around him. That's what the world needs today. The days leading up to 
uh, fighting in Afghanistan between local groups and then the Taliban escalated. And so there were thousands of refugees who uh, fled to a place called Peshawar in Pakistan. And there they were squashed into refugee camps, which were really hot. There was poor sanitation, just a terrible place to be. Some of the people who worked there were J. Woodley, uh, J. Dudley Woodbury and his wife, Roberta. And Woodbury describes what happened in the camps. He says, conditions at one camp were harsher than at the other. So Roberta and her class took school supplies to the students so they had more than just blank slates with chalk. Another group of eight workers imported thousands of sandals for the children who ran around with bare feet on the rough, parched ground. But they decided that they would also wash their feet as Jesus had. My daughter-in-law joined the group. For a week they washed every foot with antibacterial soap, anointed with oil, and silently prayed for the child. Then they gave each of them new sandals, a quilt, and a shawl, plus a small bag of flour for every family. At first, the sores, pus, pink eye, and dirt were revolting. But then our daughter-in-law felt a deep love as she silently prayed. Dear Father, this little girl looks like she does not have anyone to care for her. Let my touch feel to her as if you were touching her. May she remember how you touched her this day, and may she seek after you hereafter. Thank you for those who seek you. Thank you for those who seek you will find you. Many children looked up and shyly smiled. Sometime later, a teacher in one of the tents used for a refugee school asked her class, Who are the best Muslims? A girl raised her hand and replied, The kafirs, a term meaning unbelievers that is often used by Muslims for Christians. After the teacher recovered from her shock, she asked, why? The young girl replied, the Muslim fighters killed my father, but the kafirs washed my feet. That's the kind of love that will change the world. Love that's not logical. Love that's not conditional. Love that's contagious. Have we experienced that love? Are we rejoicing in that love? If you're here, you've never experienced that love. The Bible says that we can experience that love through faith. Faith essentially means trusting in Christ, trusting in who he is, believing that what he says is true, that we're going one way in our life, that we're trying to do life our own way. And then we come to a place where we realize that we need to enter into a relationship with Christ and we put our faith and trust in him. If that's you and you'd like to do that, I'm going to invite you to pray a prayer after me as an expression of your heart. It's not a magical prayer. It's just a beginning of your relationship with God that you can experience that love that knows no end, that's not logical, that's not conditional, but that is contagious. If you're here and you are a believer, are you demonstrating that faithful love to those around you? Are you loving even when it doesn't make sense? Are you loving when... Other people aren't loving you back. Are you loving without conditions, without strings attached? That's the kind of love that God is calling us to. It's difficult, but it's a love that can transform the world. Let's pray together. If you're here, you've never entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ. I invite you to pray a prayer like this in your heart. Say, God, I know that I'm broken. I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I don't belong in your kingdom. I don't belong at your table. But I believe that you came to the earth. You died for me. 
He rose again so that I could sit at your table, so that I could have a relationship with you that starts today and goes on forever. Lord, please come into my life. I want to follow you. I want to experience your faithful, steadfast love today. In Christ's name I pray. Lord, for those of us who are believers, Lord, I pray that we would rejoice in your steadfast, faithful love, that we would never move beyond the cross and the grace and the mercy that you've shown us in the cross. And as we look at your cross, as we bathe ourselves in your chesed, your faithful love, that it would cause us to love those around us with that same love. That those we encounter would see your love through our hands, through our feet, through our words, through our actions. Lord, help us to be a people of love, people who are captivated by your chesed. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.